Okay, welcome back to part two or part B of episode 17 with Owen Dunkley. Owen, how's it going? It's going very well. How are you doing? I'm doing great. So this is going to be a special little bonus episode. We're going to be talking about three different but related topics, all starting with the letter C. So we're going for an alliterative bonus episode today. We will be talking about cancer, CRISPR, and COVID. All relevant things to us and our families and our lives and society. And so we're just going to kind of hop right into it. We didn't get much of a chance to talk about cancer in too much detail last episode because it was going to derail us too much. Hope you enjoy part one, by the way, episode 17A. So let's start off with, uh, I guess, a definition of what it is that cancer actually is. So yeah, we never really got a chance to get into a proper definition of cancer. There, uh, there are a few Again, as biology is always complicated, with any definition in biology, you have to worry about there being multiple definitions that you could go by for any given topic. But the, the way that anyone should really understand cancer is a misregulation of how normal cells work within your own body. So, so cancer is not an outside infection getting into your body and then wreaking havoc. Cancer itself is your own human cells doing what they normally do, uh, replicating and dividing in a way that would normally be needed for your body to keep growing and keep replacing itself every few years. But when you have cells that accumulate a certain number of mutations, they can start to go off the, the beaten path and not do what your body would want those cells to do. And once enough mutations have been acquired by a given cell, then that cell can start to expand and expand and become a tumor, which in some cases can be benign, but then in other cases they can start to metastasize. So they can spread within your body uh, to different locations and set themselves up and continue to grow. So it is you initially, these cancerous cells, they do start off as part of the host body, but through their mutations, they become what could be seen as foreign. So I'm under the impression that mutation in the process of cell replication is what has led to the evolution of humans and every other species on this planet. So clearly mutation can actually be a good thing. It's allowed us to develop highly evolved frontal lobes, for example, in our brain, giving us the ability to process immense amounts of information compared to perhaps an ant or some, some other species with less cognitive resources or mental power. So what is the fundamental difference between the kinds of mutations that lead to evolution on long timescales and cancer on shorter timescales? Natural selection, which is what makes humans over really long timescales evolve their prefrontal cortexes, is a very important part in deciding on which, which organisms continue to live. And for natural selection to work, you do need a baseline level of diversity within the initial population. And then you have some event that leads to a decision between one important gene versus another important gene or one mutation versus another important mutation. So you do need a certain level of diversity and a certain level of mutation within a population to be able to lead to improvements within the human population. but. When you're looking at the human as a whole, 
if you want the human to be able to replicate, then having somatic cells, when you have a mutation in somatic cells, those cells are not going to be bringing themselves into the next generation and being a part of this diversity that's important for natural selection. Instead, all that these mutations are doing would ultimately, if, if you end up with a cancer, it's, it's only ending this germline early. You're talking about, so you were talking about the difference between a germline and a somatic cell. That is something that differentiates between this idea of natural selection or having mutations in genes that will be passed on to your progeny versus mutations in genes that will not. Mm -hmm. So natural selection at the level of the human for long-term human selection a lot of the mutations that would dictate that natural selection would have been germline mutations. So ones that are passed on through your gametes, your sperm or your ova. Got it. So, I mean, if you regularly smoke, you will regularly have more buildup of mutations within your throat throughout your life and within your lungs throughout your life. And cells within your lungs are going to have a very diverse set of mutations all over. So these these cells are not going to be passed individually down to your uh, down to your children. So while you may have a gene that predisposes you to a cancer that can be passed down, the the mutations that build up throughout one's lifetime, those don't get passed down generally. Mm. Okay, so all of so just just so I'm hundred percent clear on this, all of the germ cells that will be passed on, those are grown and divide in, inside of the testicles, or do they migrate through my body somehow and then end up in my sperm? Like, how does that? How are my lungs different from the place where my sperm come from? Well, I mean. Your lungs and your skin, so your skin is also very much exposed to the outside, mm-hmm. as are your lungs. Mm-hmm. So people regularly get mutations on their skin that leads to melanoma, which is cancer of the skin. Mm-hmm. And those, those mutations that are built up in those cancerous cells are not ones that ultimately end up in your progeny, your, your children. Whereas your testes, although they are also exposed to a certain level of outside environment and they can sometimes have mutations those mutations are not as common say as are those that happen on your skin and in your lungs that are always exposed to the outside so what's the connection here between the environment then and the effect on gene mutation being passed on to your progeny the environment is important for cancers in that if you are always exposing yourself to the sun in without putting sunscreen on, you are increasing the number of mutations that happen in any given cell on your skin. And as you develop more and more mutations, not every mutation is actually going to lead to a cancer. You actually have tons of mutations going on all the time, and most of them don't lead to cancer. It's kind of amazing that we don't all develop cancer at the age of six, the moment we start to really <laughs> expose ourselves to the sun and start breathing in secondary smoke or whatever. But things like UV light rays from the sun can lead to certain mutations within your DNA. 
as can having some carcinogen, which comes from smoking or from some other thing that you're consuming. So, so anything that comes from the outside that you're exposing yourself to, essentially anything can cause you cancer. And your body is rife with tons of cells that have mutations throughout your whole life. And you build up these mutations all the way through your life. It's just important to note that these mutations that you build up all the way through your life and that make the cells in different parts of your body actually have unique mutations, those are not the ones that actually end up passing down. It's, it's, a, it's a smaller set of mutations that ultimately do get passed down. So if I had like a genetic predisposition, somewhere in my genome, I had a mutation that would get passed down through the germline, then my children would have a higher predisposition to have, let's say, lung cancer. But if I develop lung cancer or mutations leading to lung cancer throughout my life because I'm smoking cigarettes, that's a different story. It doesn't necessarily mean that your children are going to get lung cancer. Often what these predisposition mutations are, are ones where if you have this mutation, your cells are able to divide a little bit faster or are able to evade the immune system. Like they express receptors for the, to interact with the immune system a little bit less. There are a number of different possible mutations that cancers can use mm -hmm. that can ultimately evade the immune system, replicate faster, break off from the initial tissue where they reside so that they can metastasize to other parts of your body. So any of these predisposing mutations are not necessarily going to give you cancer right away. It's, it's more a combination of different factors that can build up. It's not like a runaway train. Yeah, yeah, it, it really is. And, and the, the kind of crazy thing that we do when we're treating for these cancers, so radiation therapy, you're just giving them more mutations with hope that the mutations that you expose these cancer cells to, these tumors to, when you're giving them, when you're bombarding them with radiation, you're, you're hoping that you give them enough mutations that they can no longer replicate because they're suddenly so built up with mutations that they can't even uh, survive. That, so you really that. are fighting fire with fire. Yeah, you're, you're, you're fighting fire with fire, but you're also kind of just crossing your fingers mm -hmm. at the same time. Sorry, yeah. the, it, one more thing that I think mm -hmm. people don't necessarily know this. Chemotherapy, one of the reasons you lose hair when you're taking chemotherapy and that your skin might, uh, won't necessarily be the same it was, is that chemotherapy often targets fast replicating cells because that's one of the critical things for cancer to be able to do is to be able to replicate faster than it normally would to be able to develop these tumors. Mm -hmm. So when you have chemotherapy, you are targeting all the fast replicating cells to stop replicating, which is, which is fine for your brain cells that don't replicate quickly or other cells that don't replicate quickly. But it means that cells that do replicate quickly, such as your hair and such as your skin, those are also inhibited. So I, I always found that an interesting one. Mm-hmm. Besides hair and skin, are, are there other cells that are very fast replicating, like inside the body that we know of? Your, your gametes are probably one of them uh, for men. Mm. Your, your nails would also potentially nails. be one of them. Yeah. Uh, but yeah, you can talk to an oncologist for that. Sure. Right. So, <laughs> so I guess if you were going to undergo chemotherapy, you would probably want to maybe freeze your sperm, for example. Yes, yes, definitely. Okay. Uh, that's, that's one thing that a lot of doctors will tell you about. And another thing is that 
essentially now that now that you understand what cancer is, you can also understand that when someone says I have cancer, they're talking about any number of different diseases because a melanoma, a, a cancer that comes from the skin, is going to be very different from a lymphoma, which is one that comes from your lymph, your your white blood cells. So if you have a lymphoma, you'll you'll have a completely different disease type than you would have if you had melanoma. So when when someone says cancer, it's it's a it's a category of disease. It's not actually a disease itself. Um, like and that's that's when pe- people say glioma, melanoma, anything that ends with oma. Say it's it's a different type of disease. So that's actually great. Uh, that definitely clears things up for me because I'm. I remember when I was when I was very very young, uh, you know, maybe elementary school, hearing about things like cancer and other diseases. When I thought about cancer research, I and I, I heard how much money was going into it. I figured how much how many more months or years can it be until we've we've cured this thing? But given that every cancer is unique, because now that you've explained it in terms of mutation, every all these thousands and thousands of potential different mutations leading to some kind of event where it, it kind of triggers this runaway train of cancer, every situation can be unique to a degree. There are, of course, categories. Lung cancer might be similar to other kinds of lung cancer, but cancer itself is this big umbrella term. So that actually mm-hmm. helped me definitely categorize things a little bit better. So I appreciate yeah, I'm, that. I'm glad you touched on that because some, some drugs that are really useful for one type of cancer can actually be bad for other types of cancer. So that's definitely something to consider. If one of your uh, listeners reads an article saying, oh, this thing is great for this type of cancer, and they have a family member who has a different type of cancer, it, the thing that the, the miracle drugs that they read about might not actually be helping, it might actually be hurting. So that's why you need clinical trials and you need these larger scale tests to be done to, to see whether a given type of cancer will respond well to a given drug. Right. Now that we have all this amazing sequencing technology that can be used both for science and for diagnostics, in a clinic, a doctor might be able to, not necessarily right now, but in the future, do a quick sequencing of a given patient's set of mutations to figure out what would be the optimal drug for a patient. So you can really personalize to a person's genome. So it's it's really interesting how medicine is advancing at the rate it is. So that's the cutting edge right now, personalized medicine, or at least this is something you can see potentially becoming much more widespread in the next few decades, perhaps? Yeah, you need to be able to do trials to, to make sure that d- depending on the number of different mutations that someone might have, that they do respond to these drugs in a given way. Mm-hmm. But it's kind of amazing how a given patient with cancer of a specific type may respond to a drug in a completely different way than a different patient who has the same cancer. And there are just so many different factors that go into that. And the more we know about the factors that do go into that, the more we'll be able to properly treat people and hopefully improve the number of outcomes because tons of people die from cancer and it's not a great thing. Wow. So that's like just immense individual variability. So in terms of personalized medicine, if we can maybe try and fluidly flow into the next topic here of CRISPR, which we will define momentarily, 
is CRISPR a tool that we could potentially use in personalized medicine? Because you're talking about um, sequencing gene segments or sequencing mutations. From what I know of CRISPR, which again, you will define in the next few seconds, it is very good at kind of going into the level of genes and cutting them up and moving them around places. Mm -hmm. Yeah, so uh, CRISPR is a pretty interesting technique that has been developed over recent years. It was actually the co-option of CRISPR really happened in 2012. So this is just eight years ago. Jennifer Doudna and Emmanuel Charpentier were two researchers, one from UC Berkeley, the other one from France. So CRISPR stands for Clustered Regularly Interspaced Short Palindromic Repeats. So um, <laughs> what, what that means is in bacteria, when you have a viral infection, bacteria will take a specific fragment from the genome of a virus that infects it and put it into its own genome within this locus of its genome that's called CRISPR, which is a regularly interspaced locus within the, the genome that has little repeats of DNA that can be recognized by a protein. So CRISPR is just a locus within the genome of bacteria. But it's, it, what makes it so interesting as a locus is that it, it has little segments that are repeating throughout the genome. And that wasn't necessarily as common within the rest of the genome of bacteria. So what was also interesting about this locus is that between the repeats that were very regular, there were recognizable sequences that came from viruses. So this was figured out in the early 2000s. So this is what developed the understanding that the bacteria were actually taking segments of viral genomes to put within their own genome to recognize when a viral infection was happening. So if they survive a viral infection, and then a new viral infection comes that has that same sequence, then they can use their own machinery to take down the virus. And the machinery that they use for this is called the CAS protein, CRISPR-associated protein, or CRISPR-associated system, CAS. So anyway, within, within bacteria, you have this CAS protein that then will take the segment from within the repeating CRISPR locus, take the segment that corresponds to the virus that is infecting, it will recognize that, and then it will cleave, it will cut the viral genome so that the virus can no longer replicate. So if there's any hybridization or complementary binding of the small segment of DNA that, or RNA that the CAS is carrying, then it will bind and cleave whatever corresponding segment of RNA or DNA, depending on the CAS protein, that is within the genome. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. Let me try and say this back to you, because there's, there's, there's a lot that's happening here, but this is, this is absolutely fascinating. So I'm a bacteria. I've previously been infected by a virus. I basically took a piece of that virus's genome and inserted it into myself as a part of my memory of that virus. So if I'm ever attacked by a similar virus, I can potentially recognize that memory of their genome in this new virus. I can then cut out that matched piece of genetic material in the vi new virus itself, and that will essentially disable it. Mm -hmm. Yeah, it renders the virus unable to replicate. Specifically because you removed the segment or because you've just cut the genome? 
because you've cut the genome it it can't replicate in full anymore got it okay whoa which is which is kind of amazing in itself that bacteria have evolved this primitive immune system to viruses does it have an immune system otherwise no well of course it can't because it's because it's a single cell yeah and just so you can't have like a white blood cell inside of your one cell because you're just a cell (laughs) but oh wait a second is that how like i guess that's how multicellular organisms kind of evolve no having immune systems no no no, not not immune system per se but like uh one cell like engulfing another isn't that what we spoke about with mitochondria we we talked about that from mitochondria but i mean not all of our cells are just one cell engulfing another mitochondria and chloroplasts which are the things in plants that make them able to generate energy from light so those those are two two engulfings of bacteria that then develop into organelles or like mini organs of these cells. Mm-hmm. I do have a quick question actually on yeah. this topic because I've thought about this a lot. Is it possible to insert chloroplasts, which as we just said, are is the, the thing that allows plants to photosynthesize energy? Could we insert chloroplasts into human cells and develop like a system, almost <laughs> like a solar panel of chloroplasts? Our own solar our panels. Forum, and, and like just photosynthesize? <laughs> Using using like our 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 genetically modified chloroplast filled cells like is is that a thing? I mean that would be great. We would probably all be green, but but I don't think I don't think it would actually satisfy our nutrient requirements. I mean plants themselves are unable to move because they don't have enough energy to move. So us being able to eat tons of different sources of energy, we can get more energy from that then maybe a single plant cell would be able to get from the sun i have to i have to repeat what you said 30 seconds ago because it blew my brain right out of my cranium you said plants can't move because they don't have enough energy to move well it's it, I, sorry I, it, that that might be it feels true misleading in, that might be true in part and that it might be misleading also because i'm i mean i'm not a plant biologist mm-hmm. plants can't move because of evolution and for it, it didn't make sense for them to need to walk around to forage and get food. So I, I mean, that, that might be overstretching my assumption on that. Sorry if I misspoke. No, it's good. I just had this, this image, I guess, like a hybrid <laughs> of Groot mixed with just like the plants in my garden, just kind of one day coming to life because there's like a solar flare. Yep. Anyways. So uh, let's get back to CRISPR for the moment. Yep, um, so, so you have this Cas9. And you have the CRISPR locus. So what Emmanuel Charpentier and Jennifer Doudna figured out in 2012, where they published a paper in 2012, was they could take the locus itself and then they could modify the locus. So between the repeats, rather than having a viral genome or a segment of a viral genome, they could replace that segment with anything. And then Cas will bind take that anything and then we'll cleave the corresponding anything so if there's any dna segment because it's it's just it's just dna it's a it's a language mm-hmm. if there's a corresponding sequence within the genome that has that anything sequence then cas will come and cleave so in other words you no longer have to have a biological source of like virus infecting bacteria you can now take the cas protein and then a shortened version of the crispr locus you can put it in 
an experimental system, which could be rather than a whole bacterial genome, you can take that, put it in what we call a plasmid, which is like a mini chromosome, a, a very small DNA sequence. Mm-hmm. Um, you could think of it as like a, a little viral genome. You can put the cast protein and a mini CRISPR locus onto a plasmid. You can put that in any cell and you can choose what sequence goes into that little CRISPR locus. And when you put that in the cell, then the the cast will just do its normal job and will go cleave. It will go cut that corresponding sequence within the genome. So we didn't have any other way of directly splicing genomes at the level of individual, I guess, base pairs, right? The level of individual letters before this? Like, is, is this the first time that we're able to take some mechanism to actually go into the level of individual letters in the DNA and then chop those pieces away? It's not the first time, but it's the most simple way of doing it. Okay. So there, there are some other ways that take tons of time to engineer and to get to work to cleave the exact sequence. Mm-hmm. But since 2012, you can now, like I've been, I, I was able to do it as an undergraduate. Wow. Anyone with a basic understanding of biology can choose the sequence that they want to cut in any genome and put the cast protein alongside the modified CRISPR locus into the cell that they're trying to target or the collection of cells that they're trying to target and it will go and cleave and it will cut that one specific location. So if you have an unnecessary protein that is leading to problems, so say you have a gene that is not actually necessary for normal function, but that in itself is actually really bad for you, you can just put this plasmid in and it will disrupt the protein. Like it will cut the it, it will cut the genome in the location of that gene and then There are a bunch of different mechanisms by which the human cell will try to repair, but it won't necessarily have a perfect repair. And in not having that perfect repair, it can sometimes completely disrupt the gene. So you can knock out an aberrant gene, which which is really useful for experiments. You can you can knock out a given gene in mice that you're trying to experiment with to try and understand the the function of this experiment. So we actually kind of like the fact that the genome doesn't perfectly splice itself back together. Yeah. So, I mean, with the, when you're doing experiments in different situations, it's actually really useful to just be able to introduce CRISPR or introduce the CRISPR locus and the CAS. We'll just call them the plasmid from now on. So I don't have to keep repeating myself. Mm-hmm. So you can introduce a plasmid and it will disrupt the protein that you're looking for. Sometimes it will actually repair in an okay way so that the protein can keep being expressed, but you'll expose it to multiple cells. You'll put the plasmid in a number of different cells, and then you'll look for one cell where it actually does look disrupt and uh, disrupted, and then you can work with that cell line. So if this plasmid system of CRISPR and Cas together, if we can use that to chop pieces of the genome to remove them, can we do the reverse? Can we insert genetic material or no? Yeah, so that's, and what do we want to do that? That come uh, with that comes the slightly more complex part of CRISPR. So CRISPR Cas is really easy at just cutting the location that you want, but then trying to replace with the specific sequence that you want comes with its own challenges. So there are two ways that the cell repairs a double-stranded break in its genome. 
One is to have non-homologous end joining, which is called NHEJ. And that's a situation where the four ends of the genome that have been cut are then fused together, but with random insertions of A's, T's, G's, and C's so that they can somehow get it to work back, to click back together. It's almost like, like scar tissue in the DNA. Yeah, yeah, it's, it's like scar tissue in the DNA. So that's non-homologous end joining or NHEJ. But there's this other mechanism by which the cell can replace or repair, which is called homology-directed repair or HDR. You know how in each of your cells you have duplicates of each chromosome. One comes from your father, one comes from your mother. Mm-hmm. If you have a double-stranded break in the genome, mm-hmm. if there's homology, so complementarity between the other chromosome and the broken chromosome, then the other chromosome can be brought over to serve as a template for repair. So that it, it, it serves as a way of avoiding random mutation and instead you have a good template already there that can be used for fixing. I love this idea of template use because that sounds exactly like what the bacteria was doing. It basically snagged a template of viral DNA for itself that it could then compare to a future iteration, a future version Mm -hmm. of virus. And so you're saying our human body also has the ability to recognize that another duplicated chromosome has this kind of matching template. I find Mm -hmm. that absolutely insane. Yeah, there are a lot of uh, templates in in biology. (laughs) So so once you have this homology-directed repair, the initial way to fix CRISPR breaks or if you're trying to, to lead to a perfect fix of the gene or do a, do a very precise modification to the gene, you can put in a mock chromosome, so a, really, a shorter DNA sequence that has the double-stranded template that looks like it's another chromosome. It looks like it's the, the mother chromosome if the father chromosome is broken. So it, it looks like that in that it has complementarity at either end of the sequence to the the break, the intended break. But then you can also insert your own intended sequence in between those two complementary flanking regions. And then rather than the mother chromosome being used as a template for homology-directed repair, you can have this inserted sequence or this additional plasmid template used to replace the the double-stranded break. So then then what you're doing, rather than leading to non-homologous end joining. Instead, you're fixing and replacing with the sequence of choice. So this kind of replacement then is, again, this plasmid you're talking about, which is made up of the, the Casper and the Cas9 protein. Or, or it could be a separate plasmid. It, it can be a, a separate little small DNA segment of its own. Right. You, so you can do it as multiple plasmids all being put into the same cell at the same time. Or you could do it as a single plasmid that has all of the different DNA segments of need. So the the Cas protein, like the gene encoding the Cas protein, the the CRISPR or the mock CRISPR locus, and then the uh, template. (laughs) So you obviously can't talk like speak English or any human language to these to these tiny biological uh, you know machines that we're working with here or, or bits of bits of genome, like if you just throw a whole bunch of templates and CRISPRs and Cas9s and plasmids into a little region in a, in a dish or something, how does it know when to do what? Like, how does it organize itself? Is it just like, how does it work? 
I mean, I, I know that's, that's a huge question, but how do these things communicate? So when you have the, the functional Cas protein moving around your cell looking for complementary sequences, there will be tons of different copies expressed within a given cell. So you'll have however many thousands of this CRISPR protein just searching for that perfect match. Mm-hmm. And then once it finds the perfect match, then it cuts. And then if there are no other perfect matches, then it doesn't have anywhere to go. It's not a perfect language, but eventually you'll have the, the cut that you want. And then you're not only putting one plasmid into the whole cell with the template DNA. Instead, you have this, this plasmid is replicating and you have tons of plasmids mm-hmm. floating around the cell so that when you have this double-stranded break, the closest DNA sequence is not necessarily going to be the chromosome. You're hoping that there are more plasmids floating around so that the closest complementary sequence is actually the chosen template. Okay, that makes a lot more sense. I was imagining kind of the, this, this like one single arena where we're expecting like one piece of plasmid and one disjointed ending of DNA to everything's happening in one location, but it's actually it has just- to be perfect, yeah. Exactly, like, come on, like fingers crossed, like when we're waiting for a, a rocket, you know, to like take off of the earth, it's just all eyes on this one area. But what it really is, is thousands potentially of these little mm-hmm. particles moving around, looking, l- looking for the place to cut and to repair. And one of the interesting advancements that came, I think, at the end of last year, or was published at the end of last year, was prime editing. And in this, the CRISPR locus itself is modified so that the RNA that comes out of the CRISPR locus that carries the template for CAS to come and bind, that is modified so that it also has the template for DNA repair included onto the same RNA. So then you know that for sure the closest thing to do this repair is actually the template that you want. There are a few other modifications so that it's not only, it's not actually doing homology directed repair, it's doing a different form of repair that you know is going to to be correct and is not going to lead to non-homologous end joining. So it's, it's a really interesting technique because it has the chance of making sure that your edits are perfect. Right. But the prime editing, it was really making me think of almost like um, this very small, tiny biological version of a high school science fair project that's basically just garden shears with a glue gun attached to it. That's, that's kind of the image I had in my mind where it's like, we have garden shears, we have glue guns, let's just duct tape the glue gun to the garden shears and now we can kind of do both things at the same time. Yeah, so it, it's kind of amazing how in biology, you'd think that everything needs to work perfectly and you can't, you can't just like bind one thing to another. But with, with genetics, you can really just, you can have the CRISPR protein or the Cas protein. You can, you can bind whatever you want to the Cas protein. You can knock out the domains of the Cas protein that actually cut the DNA and you can, you can do whatever you want with it. And with prime editing, you can, you can take the, the template, you can add a few portions of the sequence, and then you can also modify the Cas protein so that it has a, a, the specific um, recruitment factor to be able to do prime editing perfectly. Yeah, it's, it's kind of amazing how you can just tack all these things together and engineer the, the perfect system. I think this episode is going to be officially dedicated to bacteria. <laughs> Thank you, bacteria, for supplying us with your lovely CRISPR sequence because you're just a beautiful thing, bacteria. If, if you're listening right now and you are a bacteria, give me a call and I will personally mail you a check for a hundred thousand bacterial dollars 
or whatever currency it is that you use. So, wow. All right. This is now, I guess, part three that we're about to enter of part two of the episode of the episode of Owen Dunkley. We're so just, on we're just really breaking it down. <laughs> on to COVID. Hey, so if you're still here, uh, super, super happy to have you still here. We're going to talk about COVID for a couple of minutes. We just finished talking about cancer and CRISPR, both fascinating things different than at least what I thought they were when we first went into the episode. So let's talk about COVID a little bit. COVID is a virus. Mm-hmm. And we spoke about viruses in the first part of this two-part series with Owen Dunkley, 17A. How does COVID differ from the retroviruses that we were talking about, such as HIV, in the first episode? And is it a retrovirus itself? So COVID-19 is a disease, the same way AIDS is a disease, caused by SARS-CoV-2, so SARS-Coronavirus-2. You'll remember that in 2002-2003, there was an outbreak of SARS, which is Severe Acute Respiratory Syndrome, and that was a disease caused by the virus SARS-CoV, SARS coronavirus. So COVID is caused by SARS-CoV-2, the same way AIDS is caused by HIV, just to be clear on that. So SARS-CoV-2 is a positive single-stranded RNA virus, and we can get into this. So it's, it's not a retrovirus in that as part of its life cycle, it doesn't turn itself into DNA before returning into an RNA, before it goes back into a particle. Um, so the genome is never turned into DNA. On the other hand, what's interesting about SARS-CoV-2 is that being a positive single-stranded RNA virus, the positive refers to the fact that the genome is encoded the same way an mRNA, which we talked about in our last episode, a messenger RNA is encoded within our cells. So the genome can actually act as a template for translation into protein. So so you're saying that coronavirus looks like the messenger RNA to our body, or it's complementary to the messenger RNA? It it looks like the the RNA in our body. So then it can be used as a template by our ribosomes to make proteins immediately. So that's that's one thing that I find interesting about positive single-stranded RNA viruses. You can have negative single-stranded RNA viruses, which before they're used to make proteins within the body to be able to replicate, little messenger RNAs from the genome have to be synthesized to then be used as templates for protein manufacturing. Whereas I think it's kind of cool as a positive single-stranded RNA virus that you can have the whole genome itself be a template or a messenger RNA in and of itself. This is ready Um, to go. Yeah, it's just ready to go. The difference between negative and positive, given that in, in the, the, the letters in RNA and DNA, or it's like A-C-T-G, right? Is the difference between positive and negative that the positive will have a T and the negative will have an A? And so they're mm-hmm. com- directly complementary? That's what positive and negative yeah. means? Directly okay. complementary. It's just the negative strand or a negative single-stranded RNA virus would not be able to immediately be used for protein production. Each virus has its own way of co-opting our cellular machinery. And I think it's, for me, it's just interesting that SARS-CoV-2 is this positive single-stranded RNA virus. Is it the fact that it is positive single-stranded, that it's kind of just ready to go, it's ready to make proteins? Is, is that the reason why it has caused a pandemic? Because of its ready-to-go-ness? 
Uh, I'm I'm not sure about that. I I would say there are a lot of different factors within the SARS virus, including the fact that it's spike protein, the thing that shoots out of the the virus, the fact that it binds so perfectly with our receptors in our lungs. People don't normally necessarily consider the positive single-stranded or the negative single-stranded classification as necessarily important in the way that it will lead to disease. Got it. So how does COVID-19 differ from SARS? And why are we not immune to it, given that SARS has been eradicated? One of the really important things about SARS-CoV-1 was that you could only infect someone else when you were already showing symptoms. What's so scary about SARS-CoV-2 is that you don't need that. SARS-CoV-2 doesn't just live at the bottom of your lungs. It can also go up higher in your throat so that you can be spreading the virus before you start showing symptoms or Mm. without ever showing symptoms. And that's extremely scary because you can't isolate everyone who has the virus because you don't know if they have the virus just from their symptoms. Everyone thought that SARS-1 was really well managed by health systems everywhere because once we figured out that you could isolate everyone in Canada, especially you just you lock down everyone in one location, you hold them from being able to infect anyone else for 14 days or however long it takes before you can't pass virus. And then you know that no virus is going to emerge. So if, you've, if you're able to lock everyone down, you're fine. Whereas with SARS-CoV-2, you, you have to test them and you have to wait for the test to come back before you can know that they're positive or negative. Is there really no way that we could have seen like SARS-CoV-2 coming and that there, there could have been this like new version of the virus that would have been able to spread without symptoms? Well, one of the things about infectious disease is you could theoretically try to make a vaccine for every virus in the world, but then you would be spending all of the wealth that there is in the world to be able to make all of these vaccines. And right. you probably wouldn't have money to make trials. Yeah. Um, and some of these viruses will never actually make it their way into humans. There are viruses in any animal that you look at. And the, the mission of someone working in global health, working on vaccines, is to figure out, rather than every possible virus that could infect humans, figure out viruses that are more likely to infect humans. Or Zika, for instance, if it were modified to be a lot more deadly, which it, which it could, it could, it could mutate to suddenly become more deadly. People in global health need to be regularly monitoring which new infections are making their way into the human population, and then you can develop vaccines. Or you can, you can see which ones are close to possibly leading to an outbreak, and then you, you really have to, you have to invest in those, those emerging diseases right as they're coming out. So that's what global monitoring is really important for. And no matter what government you are in the world, it's impossible to foretell what the next big pandemic is going to be. You just have to hope that you have the right set of potential vaccines or vaccine platforms to be able to develop the drug that you need or the vaccine that you need immediately or as soon as possible after it comes out. So one of the, one of the great things that came from this concerted effort from the global health community was that, so December 30th or 31st, of 2019, the announcement was made that there were something like 27 cases 
of this emerging disease in China that seemed to be tied to a specific virus, which was initially called 2019 NCoV, so novel coronavirus of 2019. And then by January 10th, I think it was, the, the full genome sequence of that virus was published to be accessed by any scientist within the world. Within this 10 to 12 day span, they were able to isolate and figure out what the causative agent of this new disease was, the, the virus that was causing this disease. Mm-hmm. And they were able to publish it to the world around so that people could start developing their treatments essentially immediately. So it's, it's kind of amazing how fast people were able to act right at that beginning. It's but insanely then, fast. Yeah, yeah it's, it's insanely fast. And because you can't preempt everything. You don't know what the mutations are going to be that are going to lead to a virus being perfect. So, I mean, there's enough difference between SARS-1 and SARS-2 that you can't really co-opt old vaccines. You just have to hope that the platform that you use to develop these vaccines are fast and you know that they're safe enough in humans. So we, we, we didn't really have those platforms just yet, which, which is somewhat unfortunate, but I, I wouldn't blame specific people, maybe other than not giving enough funding to these preventative measures. Mm -hmm. So there really isn't much that we can do then, or that we should do to try and even anticipate a potential SARS-CoV-3, right? I think the important thing is have a standing panel of people who are monitoring all the diseases that might be coming into the population at any given point. There was another Ebola crisis that ended in DRC sometime in the spring. So there, there are all these epidemics that are happening at different times of the year. You just have to have standing panels of people who are regularly watching these things, anticipating what could happen, and then looking at how they could best invest the international money that they have or the international funds that they have to figure out what the best drugs would be and where the money should be poured in to immediately get the research going to then get doing trials as soon as possible. Got it. I'd love to pull this all together by asking a quick question, which is, can we use the plasmids we just spoke about this, this kind of mixture of CRISPR and Cas9 to actually put them into the human body and cut the COVID genome so that it stops replicating? Can we even insert it? Like, can we even produce like a pill people could take where it just it introduces this chopping mechanism into our bodies. And in the event that COVID enters our bodies, we already know what its whole genome is. So we just need to find a particular piece of it, get a template, put it into our CRISPR-Cas9 system here, and then we're donezo. What am I missing? Uh, so that would be the dream. And that would be a really great platform to be able to, like say you have a new emerging virus, then if you have this platform of a plasma that you can put into anyone, that you just need to change the little sequence of target to the new emerging virus. Like that would be an amazing platform to be able to use. But the, the only thing is uh, the, the CRISPR or the Cas protein comes from bacteria. So it's not actually used to being expressed in humans. So we can have immune responses against the Cas protein. Mm-hmm. I, I, I don't know of specific human trials that have been expressing Cas all over the human body. I, I think there might have been some in the eye because that's more immune privileged. Like the immune system doesn't really attack the eye as much. Mm-hmm. I, I, I think there have been some 
studies into that more recently, but it's not at that point yet where we can just suddenly roll out putting tons of casts to be expressed all over the human body uh, at a given point. Got it. Once again, thank you, bacteria, but you know, (laughs) you have your limitations. Yeah, if we had figured it out earlier, if Doudna and Charpentier had figured it out years earlier, then maybe we would have that system. Right. Well, hey, look, you know, no point playing what if with history. This just means that in at some point in time, we very well likely might be able to implement something like what mm-hmm. I was just mentioning. Yeah. So, or we could have other drugs that use a different type of genetic mechanism. Or there may be some other scientific advancement that leads to a way better drug of the future. It's, it's an interesting field to get yourself into at the moment, I think. I agree, which is why I wanted to have you on for a double episode. This has turned into another behemoth of an episode, which I absolutely love, jam-packed with lots of great information, fascinating stuff. I love learning from you specifically, Owen, and of course, all of our other guests. Always a magical time here on Abstract, if you ask me. So we're going we're gonna to call it a day. This is the end of our quick little stint here. Not so quick, actually, with, uh, with Owen Dunkley. So I hope you all enjoyed him as much as I did. This has been a special bonus episode in which we covered cancer, CRISPR, and COVID. So thanks again, Owen. Really appreciated having you. Well, thank you for having me. That was, it's been really fun to go through these two episodes with you. You're immensely knowledgeable, and uh, I appreciate that you shared it with us. So have a great afternoon. <laughs> you too. Thanks for listening. If you liked what you heard, you can check us out at abstractcast on Instagram. If you have any feedback, please feel free to leave a comment on the post for the current or any previous episode that you might have listened to. Or if you're a graduate student and you would like to be on the podcast yourself, you can drop us a line at abstractcast at gmail.com. This podcast will be released weekly on Sundays and is also available on Spotify, Apple Podcasts, and pretty much everywhere else you're going to find podcasts. So feel free to check us out around the internet. Until then, take it easy.